I interviewed with Maple Leaf Foods. Somebody, somebody was kind enough. Somebody I had networked with knew Michael McCain at, uh, at Maple Leaf, who is still the CEO today. Yes. And they called him up and said, I've got somebody in my office. They're really awesome. I think they'd be a great fit with your company. She could do anything. Just bring her in. It's not a straight line. I'm Jordan Harding and welcome to the podcast. We're about to learn how people like you and I overcome career setbacks, pivot, reinvent themselves, and find work that aligns with their top strengths. Let's dig in together as we learn how these incredible people become the best version of themselves. So on today's episode of It's Not a Straight Line, we have Sherry Peterson Ajmani. Sherry is a principal and organizational development consultant at TalentCraft, a human resources firm specializing in organizational design, talent management, and culture change. Sherry has spent the majority of her career as a senior human resources leader, and I noticed one of her trademarks, or a few of them, are versatility, innovation, and collaboration. She's also known as being a quick study who is agile and credits that agility to Japan, where she moved, I believe, when she was 18 years old. Uh, She's a graduate of Sophia University, if I have it right, in Tokyo. And she also has an MBA from Rotman School of Business here at the U of T in Toronto. Sherry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jordan. Pleased to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to have you here. So Let's get to know you a little bit, or I'd love to get to know you a little bit. If you go back to to when you were 18, like how did Japan come to be? Like what what took you on that journey? That's a really great and I think pivotal question, (laughs) pivotal to my life, because uh, I grew up in a small town in Northern Ontario called Kapuskasing. Many of your listeners may, may or may not, but probably not, have not heard of it. It's a small paper mill town, 12,000 people. It's in a beautiful part of the province, but uh, but that not many people have visited. It's known for its lakes and so forth. And so uh, to be honest with you, when I was growing up, it's a great place to grow up and I wouldn't change that for anything. But by the time I was 18, I really wanted to leave and uh, feel like I could spread my wings. In a small town, you often feel like everybody knows everything you're doing and that can be pretty awkward as a teenager. And so, uh, so I had applied to go to school in Japan. I applied for a scholarship. Uh, the Ontario, the province of Ontario, uh, in collaboration with the municipal government where I went to, was offering a scholarship. And they said, uh, you know, we want to sponsor one girl uh, to go from Ontario. And I thought, I never thought in a million years that the girl from Capuscasing would get that scholarship. I, I believed somebody from Toronto or London or Kitchener would get it. And so I was pretty surprised when I got it. And that just changed so many things for me. And was there, like, had you thought about, oh, Japan would be a really cool place to go to school or to live? Yeah. So when I was 16, so two years earlier, I had applied to go on Rotary Exchange. Uh, okay. To, um, and I had applied to go to two or three or maybe four countries in Europe and uh, so it ends up being a bit of a lottery process, and I ended up going to Spain. 
And so my thought was that if you put the cultures of the world sort of on a continuum, and if you assume that Canada maybe is in the middle, a little bit reserved, a little bit, you know, a little bit easygoing and out there. And if Spain is sort of this really warm, open culture, that maybe Japan is like on the opposite end and more reserved and maybe like something I didn't yet know or feel really exposed to and wanted to go see what that was like, given that I had had this experience in Spain. And so do you think, is that something throughout your career that's, you know, it sounds like you were very interested in learning, exploring new cultures. I think you speak a few different languages. It seems like that's a bit of a trend. It is. I, I loved, and that was one of the things that I loved the most about my experience in Spain is uh, just being exposed to the language. I I just loved learning Spanish and I lived with a family when I was there, totally integrated in, um, you know, in a, in a community and in a school and I had tons of friends and uh, it was really like a, just a, an unbelievable year from this, for this teenager from small town, Northern Ontario. I lived in Mallorca, which is an island off across from Barcelona uh, in the Balearic Islands. Uh, so it was just an amazing year, right? And yeah, I just, uh, it, it was, again, that was pivotal. And then the move to Japan was pivotal too, because it meant that I would learn different ways of being, I guess. And so for a while, I kind of considered myself a bit of a chameleon in that I could get in the mindset of wherever I, of the people of wherever I was and sort of step into that and try it on for size and see what fit for me. You know, was there a big learning as you're in Japan or like what was something you came across that maybe was was a bigger challenge than you thought? And and how did you kind of work <laughs> through that? Because I've been on exchange, too. And, uh, you know, it was it was honestly one of the best times of my life. Yeah. And I think on this show, we can probably recommend to anybody who's in university yeah. to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just so um, eye-opening, just, you know, gives you so many different perspectives. But the thing that I found the most different, I guess, was probably had to do with gender relations. They're very pronounced, or they were at the time. Remember, this is <laughs> this is going a few years back, more than more than more than a decade, yep. a couple couple decades back. And they were very, very different. There, were, there are very clear expectations of women, and and even the tone of voice to use. Uh, I mm. when I speak Japanese, uh, my husband knows this. My my um, my octave, I go up by about an octave when I speak, <laughs> because that's the expectation, right? Women are feminine. Females have high voices. If you have, I have sort of a naturally low voice. And when I spoke in my naturally low voice there, they were like, oh, you sound so masculine. <laughs> so, you know, you adapt to that. Right. So, so that was, that was one thing, um, you know, not just the, the language is also built around um, gender identity. Hmm. And uh, so if you were to say, I'm hungry, in Japanese, it's a different expression for a woman than a man, like totally different words that you would use. Really? The, men talk, the men talk about their gut and the women talk about their center, 
much nicer word. It's my scent, my, you know, my center is flat, whereas, you know, my gut is hungry. (laughs) So, you know, that's like one example, but it permeates the whole language. Even the way you say I in Japanese is different for a woman than a man. So I expected things to be different when I went, but what I, what the biggest surprise for me was when I moved back, I was there for six years. And when I moved back, I actually had a hard time I had a much harder time adjusting back to life in Canada than adjusting to what I expected to be different in Japan, right? And and ad- that was that was difficult, but I expected it to be different and not, you know, the most comfortable thing for me. And was your schooling in English or was it in Japanese? My first three years was a hundred percent in Japanese. Wow. Yeah. And and then I transferred into um, a school that had more of an international, you know, like a lot of, uh, it, it was in Tokyo. So I, first I moved to Northern Japan. And so it was quite removed from, the, uh, there weren't that many people that spoke English that lived there, uh, which was great from an immersion perspective, because if you move to a big, you know, metropolitan area, you're going to be able to find English speakers. And then you might get a bit late, you know, it's like, oh, it's Friday night, I'll go out with my English speaking friends. I didn't have that luxury. So I had to learn to speak Japanese or not have any sort of social life. So that was the first three years. Then I moved to Tokyo. And, um, and there was that element that sort of so Sophia, I went to the campus of Sophia in general is a Japanese language university, but the campus that I attended was an, more of an international school. Yeah. So I've got to ask, you're going to a place three years, four, three years where it's mainly Japanese speakers. You don't speak the language. Did that, you know, excuse my language, but did that scare the shit out of you? Or were you, or <laughs> well, are you the type of person where you're like, I'm just going to dive in and do it? Yeah, so I I had the crazy gene back then. I'm not sure if I I still sort of have the crazy the crazy gene, um, where I just think I'm just gonna do it. I won't have once I'm in it, I will power through it because I don't I don't I won't have a choice, and okay. and that's okay because if I had a choice, I'd probably you know I'd probably backpedal, and so I'd just rather just you know just go for it and see what happens. Uh, that's cool. And, I, and I, it's interesting because you probably did have a choice. You could have just stayed somewhere in Canada. I could have. Right? I could have. Yeah. But, well, it's kind of like creating that environment, right? Of yeah. Like if, I, if I move to Northern Japan and I accept this scholarship that I know mm-hmm. is going to keep me there for a minimum of three years, I know by the time I'll get back, I might go through some rough times, but by the time I get back, I'll know Japanese, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's great. Someone I went on exchange with, John, he's from Niagara Falls. He is Italian, but he moved to Germany right after we graduated business school. And he had lived with two two girls that were from Germany and said to them, you can't speak to me in English. Uh, and that's how he learned yeah. German in yeah. like less than a year. And I think you did something, you, yeah. you learned it so quickly. I learned it. Re- I did learn it quickly. I learned, I remember arriving in Spain. So my first experience, and I grew up in, um, uh, so Capus Gasing is, um, is a Francophone town. It, when I was there, it was pretty mixed and now it's, it's quite Francophone. Um, and so I grew up around French and so learning Spanish, I had a bit of an advantage, but I remember being there for six weeks and being able to take a telephone call with somebody in Spanish and get by and get through the conversation 
And I hmm. remember thinking, whoa, like that was just six weeks, six weeks yeah. ago. I could not have done that. I couldn't even say hello. Right. And here I am, I'm talking on the phone with somebody in Spanish. And it's only been six weeks. So that was, that was pretty great. It took me a lot longer in Japan because there's no, there's really no similarity except for borrowed English words like elevator, you know, is erebeta for example. So you, huh. you, you can pick that up, but uh, if it's not a borrowed English word, there's no connection to our language whatsoever, right? Even the order of the words is different. Um, the conjugation of the verbs is a totally different system. Like it's just, it's all different. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. We could spend the whole podcast speaking we about could. languages because <laughs> I find it so interesting. What about in, you've had a, an incredible career in human resources and we can get into what you do now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looks like you started with Toyota and a lot of that experience in Japan helped in, in a big way. How do you yeah. now tell people about your career? So when I moved back, I remember asking myself like, okay, what, what do I actually know how to do? <laughs> and really you know, come and keep, I kept coming back to Japanese language and working with Japanese people that I really knew how, like, I could really embody the culture. I could, you know, um, I could bridge that, that gap. And so um, the job, it was one of the first jobs I applied for when I returned to Canada uh, was to work with um, the visiting uh, staff members uh, at at Toyota. So when they launch a new product, um, at the time they used to bring uh, people over, really seasoned people from their plants there to be able to show the Canadian staff how to introduce the the various processes. And so I I started as a translator or an interpreter on the working on the line with the visiting staff, and then within about three or four months I started basically working as the HR person that was bringing those people over and helping them integrate if they were longer term people helping them integrate within the community in Canada and if they were shorter term just making sure that they had all their needs met they had their health and like I used to do the health and safety training and all that kind of stuff so that was my very first job out of school and so was that your first that must have been your first foray into HR is that correct yeah, and I don't even know if I would have actually considered it or defined it as HR at the time. The reason I let, like, while we're sort of talking about careers, the reason I left it is I found over time, I did it for three years, and I found that it was difficult for me to position myself in any other way within the company. I felt like I was stuck in jobs that needed Japanese speakers and interacting with the Japanese staff. So, which is, you know, very, very small number of jobs at that, you know, it's a very large operation. I could have probably taken my career in any direction, but people were like, but you speak Japanese. So you don't want to do that job over there in supply chain, or you don't want to, you know, uh, why would you want to do that? Like you need to use this skill that you have. So in a strange way, I actually found the Japanese limiting for me and I ended up leaving and I worked in an administrative job and I used my Japanese a bit. And then I realized, oh, I'm still stuck in these administrative jobs. And uh, I really want to break out of that. So that's when I went back to school and I was like, I'm going to redefine myself with the MBA. So then I said, 
I want to do when I'm done MBA. Wow. I really want to do strategy. Okay. And so I started networking um, after like when I was in my last semester of school, I started networking and I was, I found it really, really tough. And what actually worked for me. So, what, you know, which part of it tough? Did you find the networking tough or did you find like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this strategy kind of work? I, well, I, what I would say is, you know, I didn't have any experience in strategy, yeah. right? I had the MBA going for me. So I, I figured I really needed to use this opportunity just to say, and I, and I think it was a successful strategy to say, look, I'm rebranding, <laughs> right? All right. I'm yeah. a I'm a business person, or I'm going to be. I'm an aspiring business person, and I'm obviously capable of learning things because look at me. When I was 18, I went to Japan and I integrated there, and I, I you know I represented a Canadian company while I was there too to earn some money, and I've been able to do these different things. So. You know, I basically was saying you can take a chance on me because I have this background of being able to learn things really quickly and, you know, give me a challenge and I'm going to do it. By the way, I really want to do strategy. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) so, uh, so I was networking. I was trying to get in uh, introductions into various companies. It's so funny because now, you know, 20 years later, I'm hel- I'm helping people do the same thing, but at a different level and with a little bit better focus. Yes. Uh, but I was trying to get introductions into company and companies and trying to convince them, you know, I'm smart and capable. Give me a give me a chance. I'm a newly minted MBA, right? You want me, and so uh, so I I interviewed. Um, with Maple Leaf Foods, yes. somebody somebody was kind enough. Somebody I had networked with knew Michael McCain at okay. uh, at Maple Leaf, who is still the CEO today. Yes, and they called him up and said, "I've got somebody in my office. They're really awesome. I think they'd be a great fit with your company. She could do anything. Just bring her in. Like she's young talent, kind of thing." And Michael didn't um return so it was a voicemail he didn't return the call but he got the head of hr to call this person back and get me in for an interview so i i my first interview was with the head of hr and what he said is like i i don't know what you're going to do for us <laughs> but you're a great cultural fit you map to our values and we'd love to have you so stay tuned we're going to kind of consider you for a bunch of different jobs. We also agree we could probably slot you in a diff- bunch of different places, you know, jun- junior jobs, not senior jobs. Uh, but, you know, we could kind of start you anywhere. And by the way, we think we do have a strategy job for you. <laughs> um, so I was interviewing for the strategy job. I, I almost had it. I didn't quite have the offer in hand, but then the person I was going to be replacing who's a wonderful person. She's a CFO now in Germany. And uh, she was going to be vacating that seat. She decided, nope, I'm not going to vacate the seat. I'm going to stay. I, I, I like the job. There were a few other things going on. I'm going to stay. So then, so then nothing, right? I'm like, oh, I really want to join this company. And they said, well, would you come in? We'll get you into whatever you want. And then we're big enough. We move talent around. Like We, un- we get this why don't you come in and manage our management trainee program in our leadership development area for a year? 
and we promise it won't be more than a year. Well, I loved that job. I took that job and I loved it. I loved everything about it, working with new university grads. I did all the uh, campus recruitment. Uh, I developed like a competency uh, model for the MTs. We developed a new uh, leadership program for operations as well, because it was difficult to attract young talent to our plant. I did those things in that first year. But, you know, but it was always with the, oh, I'm waiting for my strategy job. Then I moved on. I actually took a job in marketing and I missed it so much. Like I just realized that I didn't really care that much about selling more product uh, at the end of the day. Like I thought, oh, I'm a new MBA and marketing and strategy is going to be so great. And then I realized that this was really my calling. So a year later, I went back (laughs) to the leadership development group. Uh, at Maple Leaf in the head office, and and uh, and I've been in HR pretty much ever since. Wow, there's so many <laughs> so many things you could unlock in that story. But isn't it so incredible how how like one networking meeting, probably one of several or hundreds, where it was someone who picked up the phone, and next thing you know, you have the head of HR calling you. But that's <laughs> that's so interesting. So. When you when you when you went over to marketing, were you like, oh, marketing might still still be something of interest? And then you were like, oh, I like this leadership and development. Or was Maple Leaf like, hey, this is where we'd like to move you next? Um, they so so I like over the course of the year, I had many discussions with them, and you know, there the strategy group was pretty small, and so there wasn't another strategy manager job that opened up in on the time frame but they said well what you know where what else they were very good about keeping the dialogue open uh, really and actually it was like my group that would have been responsible for you know facilitating a lot of those uh conversations and and making sure we were you know following talent through the organization and finding opportunities for them but i said you know marketing is a very close second for me because it is strategic, you know, it drives the company and a CPG company, you know, marketing is, you know, pretty dominant function uh, in terms of leading the business, right? I mean, operations is king in a way because without them, you don't have a product, but, but who's the commercial lead? It's, it's marketing. And so I was like, totally open to go to marketing. And I had a good, I did have a good experience there. Um, but I just found that in terms of my, if I think about my values and like, I didn't, I was too young to know, you know, and I guess maybe until you have the experience, you don't fully get it, but I want to be involved in helping people succeed. I want to be involved in helping people grow, not just myself, right? Not just my own career journey. I want to see other people's career journey as well. And I now that's what I do probably 80 to 90% of the time is help other people with their career. Uh, yeah. that's, so that, so let's get to that. So you went yeah. to Walmart, Canada, hmm. yep. like just a small corporation globally. Just, right? <laughs> um, and so you were what head of orga OD. I think that's organizational design. Is it? Yes, I had I had organizational design, I had talent management and performance management in my portfolio. Uh, by by the time that I left, I was there for about four years. I started as a director in um, 
in the home office uh, business partner business partner team. So, so the great thing I, I want to recognize Maple Leaf for you know having that career conversation with me to say, look, you're doing great in leader. So I went back to leadership development after my time in marketing. I spent, um, gosh, I don't know, maybe five more years there, probably after I was done in marketing. And, um, and, and the conversation was like, if you're, we think you could move on to a senior role. What, um, what do you think you need? And by the way, we have a few ideas of what we think you need. Like if you want to be run HR, for example, for one of our companies, you can't just be the leadership development person. You're doing a great job there, but it's too narrow. You've never really been in front of, like you need to understand the client demands of an HR person. So they're like, you're going to have to train as a generalist. So I had to move away from my my love of, uh, of, of leadership and sort of more on the program and project side of things um, and sort of, you know, interact, you know, one-on-one with various managers in the business and develop that whole skill set. Because to be honest, that was a whole new world for me when I started that. I really, even though I had been in HR, quote unquote, for several years at that point, it was a new, a new world, a new skill set to learn. And so I moved because I was leaving Maple Leaf as a generalist, I was hired into Walmart as a generalist. And then I returned to, you know, once I had been there for a while and I was doing a lot of uh, structure work with my client group, they said, you know, you're, you're really well suited to this. Would you come back? Would you, you know, sort of change sides, if you will, uh, within HR and would you um, lead some of these functional areas for us? So that's, that's, um, that's how I ended up in uh, doing OD was basically through the generalist work that I was uh, championing with um, various internal clients. And, and so Sherry, it seems like then there was another um, rebranding or pivotal moment in, in your career and life after you had spent, and we could, you know, we could go into your, your jobs at Walmart, but what was it that kind of made you transition or want to transition from the corporate world of Walmart to it seems like at that time you launched Talent Craft and and you you started working for yourself or you launched your own firm. Yeah. Kind of take us through what how you how you started launching your own firm. Well, so what I would say was descriptive of the pretty much the whole my whole time at Walmart would be that we uh, Walmart had been a company that, or Walmart Canada at least, had been a company that hadn't been through much transition for for years, and uh, and then we had, you know, we had new leadership, and as new leadership comes in, they see different needs for the business, and so for the first time, sort of around the time I joined, we started our first waves of restructuring, and so that four years, I would say, was restructuring was characteristic of that time frame, and. It was in like intellectually, it's interesting work. Emotionally, I found it quite draining uh, because you're making decisions, you're helping business leaders make decisions often about people that you work with every day and that you value as human beings and value as business people and value at potentially as friends. And so when you're ripping apart org structures 
you know, again, intellectually, it's an interesting challenge to figure out how to do it more efficiently, but the human impact is really, really high. And so I really found that by the end of those four years, I was really drained. And I had a young family. When I started at Walmart, my children were three years old, one year old, and one year old, because so like total age of the three children is five years old. Um, And so very young family, very busy, three boys, unbelievably active and like bouncing off the walls, (laughs) like all the time, right? I just so is it found... safe to say you have, you have twins? Is that safe? Yeah, to say? I have twins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you had yeah. a three-year-old and two twins that were one. Okay. One. And you know, and and not every one of those restructures is going to be you know all people that you're you know intimately um, you know that you're eating lunch with or whatever. But sometimes it is. And I just, uh, I got to a point where I was like, I just can't, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I don't want to do it anymore. I'm, I'm, I, I'd like to do something different. And what I found was, you know, I, I did see the, the value in what I was doing and I could see the savings for the company. And I could, I, I liked coming up with new and better ways of, of doing things that um, I, you know, I spent six years in Japan. So I like efficiency, right. It's like, it can be a focus, but I, I, I wanted to work more one-on-one individually connect more with the people I was working with and do something that was more meaningful to them. And so that's when I decided to go out on my own. Um, I spent the first year away, one, sort of recharging, um, but two, um, I also did my coach training. I went to the Adler School and I just, I discovered that I loved coaching and it was a way of working one-on-one with people and it was a way of sort of deepening that, you know, that one-on-one work that I could do with people. And so now what I do about, once I had been um, away for about a year, I approached Knightsbridge to see if I could work with them as a consultant. Um, Luckily, the answer was yes. So I've met just hundreds and hundreds of clients through, uh, through Knightsbridge I started coaching, having like uh, through my own practice, but also coaching with Knightsbridge. And then I made partnerships with um, some HR consulting firms that I could do um, projects with, you know, that when they had a project come up that fit my skill set and, you know, they needed an OD person, then they came to me for, for that. So that put together put all of those pieces together and it, it more or less puts together a full-time job uh, for me, keeps me busy and keeps me doing more work that I like and gives me a, like a fair bit of flexibility. You know, if I, because I don't have a direct employer anymore, you know, if I decide that, Hey, I have to be off until 10 AM today because I've got doctors, my kid, you know, my kid needs something or whatever it is um, I can, I can do that. Yeah. So it, it just, it, it made life a lot more uh, manageable for our family and, and for me as, as a person too. Yeah. And I, so it seems like there was a year in between where you kind of 
reestablished who you wanted to be from a career standpoint. It sounds like there was a little burnout there. I don't know if you want to speak about that at all. And even as we look at today's environment, you know, it's been a Mm -hmm. challenging two years for a lot of people. Uh, There's a lot of things going on in the world. Uh, Of course, we all know about the pandemic. Now people are returning to the office and there's this whole concept of whether it's the great resignation or the great reassessment. Yeah. Do you have any advice based on how you reassessed your own career and found that next step and any thoughts for people that might be listening, thinking about their path and what might be next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it's such a great question. And I, 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 I like calling it the great reassessment. I think you've touched on something there that's really real because I think so many people are truly reassess and it may result in resignation it may result in something different some redefinition of of life and and what working you know means to people uh, I just I think it's really made us question what were um, you know what we do and was it worth it and why were we running down <laughs> why why were we rushing out the door every morning and the stress of everybody getting their snow pants on like and getting out the door and we're gonna be late like i think everybody's just so glad that's not where we are anymore we accepted that as a way of life and i think it's so difficult to accept the return to office now for so many people because it means that that those little added stresses that really can be quite uh, for working parents especially quite a panic at the beginning of the day and again at the end of the day like I have mm-hmm. to go now and the streetcar has to be on time or the whatever like I have to not hit traffic or I'm gonna you know the fines from the daycare and all of that <laughs> stuff. And all of that has melted away in the two years, right? And then it's like, what was I, what were we doing this for? And what was I earning that money for? Do I need that much money? Could I sell my house and go somewhere else and live maybe a more relaxed lifestyle where I get to focus on what I want to do, right? Or maybe I just keep working from home because I've been doing it successfully for two years and my, you know, my performance hasn't slipped. And was there anything that helped you from a decision point of view, um, figure out what you would do next and how you would, you know, you called Knightsbridge, you, you created talent craft. Yeah. Like what, how do you make those decisions? Like some people tell me they kind of sit quietly and they listen, listen to themselves very intently or, you know, other people Mm -hmm. are like pros and cons. Do you have anything that helps you make those decisions? I don't think there's one answer. I think for me, it was a variety of just like truly stepping back. I hadn't stepped back in, you know, like you realize I've been going for 20 years without stepping back and reassessing. Like I've never even had a two week vacation. My vacations are always, you know, one week and you barely start relaxing and you're back at it. And, and that you almost needed that to be able to keep up with it. Cause if you took too, too much time off, you might actually reassess that whole thing. Right. Um, but I think it was a combination of things. I did start meditating 
yeah. in that first year, I started walking. So I had, after I had my kids, I went through a period of time where I had zero exercise and just zero self-care habits. I only worked and looked after the kids and worked and looked after kids. And that was the entirety of my, and slept, right? Three chunks of time. That's all I have time for. I do not have time to take care of myself. And my body actually started to rebel on me. <laughs> and, uh, and I actually went through this period of time. I can joke about it now, but it was not funny at the time where I thought I, maybe I had developed heart disease because I'd be driving into the office and, oh, I'd get a pain in my chest and, oh, it was terrible. And, uh, and they, the, my, my doctor did say like, look, it's really looking like this. We've got to do all these tests, but even the early tests are looking pretty bad, Sherry. And then the final test, I see a cardiologist and he's like, you are perfect. You are just stressed out. <laughs> um, so, so hello, uh, my body's talking to me and saying, I'm doing something that's not great for it. Right. And so that year I started a walking habit, a meditation habit, a reflection, a journaling. Um, okay. I, have, yeah. I should probably bring that back, but I, I have dropped the journaling, but I did a gratitude journal uh, for about a year. And, and then I just, you know, I talked to a lot of friends. Um, yeah, I made friends with new people. I, I did a, I did a meditation course and met a whole bunch of people who were also reevaluating their lives. I'd go for long walks with them. You know, it was like a, a, a re, like that was my reassessment, right? I feel like I've, yeah, yeah. I've done it. I did it six, six years ago. My, my great reassessment I'm, I'm, I'm done. And what I would say is I feel like, you know, my husband and I have been having these conversations you know, um, I'll be careful not to share too many of his personal thoughts in, in this, but, but where he says, well, you know, maybe in the next, you know, maybe in the next five years we, we retire. And I'm like, I don't want to retire. I love what I'm doing. Had I continued the path that I was on, I probably would be saying, yeah, yeah, we got to get out of this rat race. Right. Yes, but I'm like, yes. I'm doing things I love. Yes, <laughs> I'm yes. not leaving this. This is where I get value and I feel like I'm helping people and like I have these friendships like my yes. clients become you know um <laughs> that might sound kind of corny but uh but my clients really become like I develop really close relationships with them and when they land I'm so thrilled for them like the career transition people or the coaching clients that you know, achieve something they were looking for, or they fix a relationship that was damaged or whatever it is. I'm so excited to see those changes. And I'm like, there is no way I'm stepping back from this in five years or even in 10 years, I want to keep doing it. And so for me, that's really been what I've been able to do in this period of time is like, what do I love? I do, I want to work more one-on-one -on -one with people and so I've been amping that up over the last six years, right? I started out doing more projects. Um, and then and then as I've been able to, you know, get my name out a little bit more, I have more people that come to me. They want to do ongoing work together. You know, sometimes I won't see somebody for three months and then they come back and they like they want to do three or four more sessions and then they're good. I don't see them for another six months. But I have that kind of um 
group of people now that will refer me and come back. And so, yeah, I, so I just, I feel so much more fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I love seeing the energy and I think it's so yeah. good for people that listen to this podcast that it, it truly, um, you can find that right fit, uh, for yourself. So let's, let's talk about what, what you're focused on now and what your fo- work is focused on now. And I don't know if you want to, you know, talk more about how you help executives with transition and we can get into, yeah. I know you have a very good, uh, concept about networking when you're transitioning or just mm. whatever you want to say about the work you do now. And I'd love to hear like, what are the types of companies or people that, get in touch with you? Well, you know, this is the a difficult uh, question for uh, for a self-employed person because you kind of want to go broad, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and you kind of want to say you can help uh, everybody. I have learned, um, and I might, you, you know, you, you might not even realize who, um, who you fit best with until you kind of get in, until you kind of have a, a a relationship where it's like, oh, I don't think I can help this person. Right. Yes. And then, yep. and then you assess like, well, what is it about that person or their situation or their background where I think I can't help them? So I think I help, I'm better at helping people in large corporate environments because that's what I know, yes. <laughs> right. That's what I grew up in large corporate environments, navigating all kinds of, you know, politics and, processes and all kinds of, you know, we don't mean for it to be a big bureaucracy, but it, it is right. And so navigating those kinds of things, but, but also, and I, and I guess I would, I would say I, I tend to help uh, again, because of the work I've done with Knightsbridge over the last um, five plus years, I am always supporting executives. So I give, I can give much better advice because I've, I've learned, I probably had like four or 500 clients in that period of time. And so I learned something from all of them, right? And I've learned, you know, who are the recruiters to go to if you work in this, but, but it's all at the executive level. And so, you know, if somebody comes to me and they're, you know, let's say an accountant, like a financial analyst, I don't, I don't know. I kind of think like, oh God, I don't know who the recruiters they should talk to are. Like I can kind of come up with them because I know a bit about the market, but I don't know it. I don't know it, know it, you know? Um, so I would work with people navigate sort of director and above right up to C-suite. I've worked with CEOs, um, helping them land at the next place. And it's really, I have been surprised. I don't consider myself a natural networker but I have grown to see the power of this. And because I'm independent, I, you know, for me to do anything, you know, it's just, it's just me. So I, I have to do, I have to network to do almost anything and reach out to people. And so before what would have been a difficult reach out for me, like, oh, I don't want to bother that person. Now it's like, I just tell them this, my secret and what made it easier for me is to say, I think you could get this out of this. Like if I introduce you to this person over here, here's what I think is in it for you. Here's what I think is in it for them. Would you be willing to talk to them, for example, about the private equity space? I know you work in that space. 
for you, they're going to have a lot of contacts. I know you're trying to make inroads in insurance. They come from a big insurance company. Like how about, I'm just making it up, right? But For sure, yeah. So I try to spell that out. I think you could learn something from this person. If you're open to that, let me know. If you're not, no obligation. I always, And I always ask permission. And, um, you know, every once in a while, I get a sneaky feeling that maybe somebody out of obligation took a phone call. But I would say 95% of the time, people are like, oh, I'd totally be interested in that, right? For sure. So really for you, it's a lot of your focus has been helping executives transition from one role or position to the next. And do they normally come come to you through um, like they've been laid off or a change in leadership and then? Oftentimes a change in leadership. Interesting that you say that because almost always and and, you know, they come and they are also dealing with a lot of. they bring some emotional baggage with them, right? That, well, why didn't this new leader want me? What is it about me? Am I not good enough or smart enough or like what's wrong with me, right? And so I'm part counselor to them. I'm always willing to listen to that story. I can offer perspective. And what happens after having worked with hundreds of people like that, you can kind of share trends and, you know, and you can say, you know, you're going to land on your feet everybody lands. Like I've worked with 500 people like you, everybody lands. Don't worry, you will land. Right. And I, and I, I'm here to help you through like, through everything. And you can call me just to say you had a bad day, but we can also, we're also going to brainstorm what our target companies, guess what? I've worked with 500 people. They came from 500 companies. They went to 500 new companies. I've got contacts in like a thousand companies, right? So, um, (laughs) which is great. This diaspora of people that you work with. I I mean, I didn't have this network five, six years ago. I, I, my early clients, I couldn't help nearly as much as I can help people now because it's like, oh, you want to get into a food startup? Oh, I know five people that have gone to food startups. Whereas before I'd be like, well, I know some people at Maple Leaf or Walmart, like maybe you could talk to them. Right. Um, So you just, yeah, you get to know so many people and, and, uh, and it's not like, I don't feel like I have to answer all of their questions. It's like, well, you don't know the answer to that question. Talk to somebody that does. Right. And, I can hopefully make an introduction for you or teach you how to kind of navigate through networks to get to the people who can answer your question. So, and so do you brand it with, do you do brand it as more executive coaching or is it more like executive transition? Um, I would call that part of the business executive. um, It's, it's career transition, career transition. I do do coaching as Mm -hmm. well. So I, you know, and I do do project work. I still do organizational design work, um, workforce planning and, you know, talent assessment and uh, build training and all kinds of things. But, you know, the things I get, I guess that I get the most excited about are really the career transitioning and the career transition and, um, and the coaching of people who have whatever challenges they're facing to help them. Um, you know, close the gap or understand themselves better so that they can do that more naturally too. 
And, and well, Sherry, I've got a few more questions. I want to be super respectful of your time, but one of them is where can people find you? Like, is it mainly on your website or do you post to content to LinkedIn or another platform? They could probably most easily reach out to me on uh, on LinkedIn. I do have a website. It's talentcraft.ca. Um, and they so they can see what I look like on there. They can see what I do. I, uh, to be honest, I use the website relatively um, sparingly, to be honest. It was really there. I created it in the early days so that people could find me and know that I was um, committed to the space. And it probably, I probably do need to, uh, to, to revisit it and probably update the offering a little bit, but, but they can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place. Yeah. Okay. So it would be Sherry Peterson dash Ajmani. Ajmani. Okay. I'll put that in, uh, in the description. And then what about, do you have one piece of advice, whether it's somebody who's an executive or, somebody who's kind of earlier in their career when it comes to if they are either transitioning or looking for a role, like, is there something you would, you would recommend as you, you must do this? Well, I, I think there's a few important steps, but it's really about knowing their story. Right. Um, and, and so what is the story that you want to tell about where you're going? You do need to be able to describe what you know and what you bring to the table, but it's also important to show like what's the next, what's, what's your target. And then that allows people that you're talking to, to give you ideas out of their head because they probably know people that are connected either to that industry or that function or that type of project work, whatever it is, they're going to hear something in that story and be like, oh, I should introduce you to my friend so-and-so because that's exactly what they're doing, all right? Or they made this transition a few years ago. Um, And so being able to succinctly tell that story of here's the type of problems, you know, that I typically solve but also here's what I, what I want to do going forward. And, and, and you could help me if you knew anybody, you know, in this space, I think it's really just being clear about your ask and talking to lots of people. It's a numbers game at the end of the day, right? So just getting in front of lots of people. If you only talk to two or three people about the, what you want, the chances that that person, that those three people are going to be able to help you are very low. If you talk to 50 people about what you're looking for, the chances are actually really good that you're going to get connected to the right people, right? That's that's good advice. It is really about knowing the brand and story you want to tell or how you want to, what you want to do next. Because you're right, it opens people's up. Like I didn't even think about that. It opens them up to giving you advice, thoughts that maybe you didn't even have. And we're constantly learning from others, right? That's what I find. I, that's what I love about this work. I was going to say, you were talking about how people should know their story. Do you think it's very important for someone going through an executive transition or career transition to know where they want to go next and only really focus on connecting with people that can kind of help in that direction? Or if an opportunity comes out of somewhere else, you have the conversation and see where it goes. You're always scared on not wanting to waste people's time, but you truly don't know where a discussion could lead to. You really don't. I would say, um, again, because it's a numbers game and because 
we don't decide on our own a hundred percent, right? We, we guide the process, but there's other forces influencing us all the time. Right. And, and part of career management is, you know, you have to have advocates and you have to have other people opening up the door. You have to have other people who are willing to hire you to do the things you want to do. It's not just you. Right. And so I would say, I do have clients that will say, oh, that's not really the right fit. I'm not going to bother to have that conversation because I don't want to waste anybody's time. At the same time, some of those, they will tell me later, I had that conversation. You told me to have that conversation. I thought it was going to be a total waste of time. And that turned out to be the one conversation that led me to, you know, meeting so-and-so and whatever that that turned into something you really truly do not know where the next thing is going to pop up from and so you ha- i would say if you're going to err on one side or the other err on the side of you know speaking to more people being open to more ideas know what you want in your heart right um you know if if you know i'm an hr person and i'm you know i've been talking about how much i like helping other people if you were to say uh, you know, go and analyze financial statements for that organization over there. I'm going to say that's that's a hard no for me, right? I, I'm just I don't have the skill set. I'm not interested. It's not where my heart is at. So so it's kind of the difference. Between, but but if somebody said, well, I know that recruiting isn't really your thing, Sherry, but it's a lot more of talking to people and helping them, you know, meet their career goals. I'd be like. I'd be willing to have that conversation, right? Even though I think recruitment's probably not my thing, it's a related space. It and I might be good at that, and I might really enjoy helping people land, right? And and finding the right talent for a company. Yeah, all of those things jive with what I like to do. So, you know, that kind of it might seem like a diversion, but it might be a really fruitful one, right? For sure, yeah. I think that's like an amazing spot to to close out and. Thank you for that. I, that was, you know, some of the things you've shared are just incredible about career and career management. And thanks for the energy you brought and for agreeing to do this. And shout out to Brad Furtney, who uh, connected us. Absolutely. Thank you, Brad. <laughs> and, th- and thank you, Jordan, for your time and your thoughtful questions. There you have it. Thanks for checking out It's Not a Straight Line. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, and if you can, leave me a review, provide me some feedback, and I wish you all the best as you find your way in your career and life.